Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. I have in the studio today Rob Sheffield. Hey, Rob. How you doing, Brian? I'm okay, and Rob Sheffield is here to talk about his extensive and definitive list <laughs> on rollingstone.com, the 98 best songs of 1998, which apparently was 20 years ago, and it's called Pop's Weirdest Year. Why was 1998 Pop's Weirdest Year, Rob? Well, it was uh, it was a weird year because all the stuff that had been sort of uh, culturally massive early in the year, grunge gangster rap, all the stuff from early in the decade, that had kind of played out and the next wave of really big stuff hadn't really happened yet. Nobody knew that teen pop was coming and new metal was coming. So 1998 was a time when really kind of the freakazoids took over the radio and, and took over music in general. Yeah, I mean, looking at your list, what it is is a lot of different trends intersecting, a lot of anomalous stuff, a lot of solo projects, side projects, and one-hit wonders. and Yeah, so many great songs in 1998, so many beloved songs that only really could have happened in 1998. It's, it's a year with a really distinctive, imbrugliotastic sort of personality, we could say. And I'll start by talking about two songs that are left off your list. Ooh. One is The Way by Fastball. And we, should, <laughs> we hear that for one second. And why is The Way by Fastball? It is such a 1998 song. Why, why did you leave it off? There are only 98 songs on the list. This, you know, it might have been number 99. I, I sure loved it at the time. It's a great song. But it, it's, there, there are so many, so many songs from the It's a crowded year. It also does not fit your criteria of could only have come out in 1998. It actually could have come out any year between 1978 and <laughs> 2000, probably. So maybe that's why. And then the other one is more major, Baby One More Time, which a very important song of 1988 is not on your list, but for a very specific reason. It's 1999. That, that might be my number one song of 1999. You said it's it spiritually. I mean, technically, it was released in 1998, but yeah, spiritually yeah. belongs to 1998. Lots of songs were technically released in 1998, but didn't really have their impact until later. Conversely, other songs that were released at different times had their impact in 1998. We will allow that. This is this is inside baseball. This is you know, <laughs> it's the year of impact is 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 really the main criterion. So rather than count down the list, Rob has suggested we count up. I guess would be how you'd phrase it, and we'll, we'll start at the top. We're just going to start at number one. Let's put, let's put it that way. And number one is Harvey Danger, Flagpole Sitter, which I think is an amazing choice. Let's hear that for one second. Would that have been anywhere near number one at the time for you, or did it rise in your estimation over the years? Oh yeah, I loved that song at the time. Everybody loved that song at the time. It was a song that people talked about, that people heard about, thought was too weird to be as huge as it was, 
and a song that really kind of struck a nerve with people. And it's a song that uh, it was huge and, and ubiquitous at the time, but it's also had uh, just an astoundingly long afterlife. It's a song that you know resonates for people who you know weren't even born when I'm not sick, but I'm not well was blasting out of radios all over America. Number two is Nicole featuring Missy, Misdemeanor Elliot, and Mocha, Make It Hot. You, you call this Missy and Timbaland's ultimate masterpiece. Yeah, uh, Missy and Tim were so dominant in the radio in, in the late 90s that the sound of Virginia Beach was, was blowing up all over the world. It was uh, funny, I interviewed Massive Attack in 1998. And wow. when I mentioned that I was from Virginia, they asked me all these questions about Virginia and we kind of couldn't change the topic to anything else <laughs> because they were so obsessed with Missy and Timbaland they, they were asking questions like, what's the weather like? You know, <laughs> what what do people eat? Just because Missy and Timbaland had this recipe that everybody around the world was was obsessed with. And they had so many hits that, you know, some of the hits came out under Missy's name. Some came under, you know, Timbaland and Magoo's name. Some were just Tim solo, but also they had all these protégés and side projects. And uh, Nicole Ray was one of their protégés. And, and this song was officially released as a Nicole Ray song, but, you know, you can hear Missy in it, and you can hear Tim, and you can hear Genuine and Playa and Aaliyah and lots of their other friends singing along. It's really kind of a celebration of the scene. It's a posse cut. And let's hear Make It Hot. That ain't cool. All right, number three, Natalie Imbruglia, Torn. What is there to be said about this masterpiece? What an amazing song. Something I love about Torn is that it more or less comes out of nowhere, that that lots of people went to, contributed to the making of Torn, and yet Torn was once in a lifetime for all these people. You know, I love lots of Natalie Imbruglia songs, but the second best Natalie Imbruglia song is, is not Torn. Torn is just a sort of fluke of the universe that's kind of like one of those beautiful things that it, it only could have happened in that time and in that place. As, as an indication of how 1998 this song is, the first time I heard it was when I received the advance promo VHS tape of the video in the mail because that was a time when major labels did things like if they had a hit, they wanted to send out uh, advance videotapes of the video so and, and it was a good way to sort through songs so uh i was just going through a stack of uh, advanced promo vhs tapes and i thought oh my god this song is amazing this is this is going to be huge good call and number four outcast rosa parks such a huge crucial part of 1998 uh like a lot of people probably i first heard rosa parks uh in, in 1998, I was watching MTV and the Rosa Parks video came on MTV. I was so astounded that I immediately got off my couch and got into my car and drove to the record store while it was still open because I needed to hear this song again and I couldn't bear to wait until morning. So I, I went and bought a Quemini and then I just listened to it all night. I'd, I'd never heard any album like this. It was a completely mind-blowing album. And Outkast, they had all, already done so much great stuff and they've done so much great stuff since then. But there's something like particular about Equemini. Yeah, for a lot of these things, I mean, it's hard to get across the impact of hearing Outkast for the first time. And similarly, Aaliyah, Are You That Somebody? And, and speaking of Timbaland, I mean, what a, what a beat, what a world-altering beat. And we'll, let's let's hear that for a moment. Dirty 
I almost got to watch Timbaland in the studio well, well, well after this. And it, you know, I mean, he built beats a lot of times by playing one piece of a drum kit at a time because he couldn't really play drums, but he would play a drum kit and then layer the pieces on as if it was a drum machine, but it was an actual drum kit. And you, you can, knowing that, you can sometimes hear, and obviously there, there'd be electronic elements as well, but it's interesting to know that and listen to his beats sometimes. That's really interesting. But are you that somebody? What, what does that do for you? It's, it's another, like, you know, Missy and Timbaland song where it there's just uh, the sense of it. It really creates a, a sense of, of time and place. It's just an incredibly, like, deep Timbaland beat in terms of his beats being so so earthy yet so spacey at the same time so full of reverb I mean it, and the, the idea that a record this avant-garde was all over the radio a record that just starts and stops at will and yet uh, you know Aaliyah is, is so cool and so collected all the way through it it's it's wild to, to go back in time and think that you know before Aaliyah hooked up with Missy and Timbaland it, it was thought that she'd already had a career and she was already kind of done because she had her, her sort of teen pop early 90s uh, back and forth. And so it was really kind of a, a comeback for her when she met up with Missy and Timbaland, who at that point had not yet made their bones on the national scene. So it was kind of a beautiful collaboration all around. I remember Timbaland saying that Aaliyah was drawn to the most out there beats that he, if, if you know, you played her five tracks that she might do something with, she would pick the weirdest one which is cool because I think people wondered what degree of artistic autonomy, because that was, at the time, what she was known for was just like this amazing production, which obviously was Timbaland's production, but she was, you know, she had extreme artistic agency in that. Uh, Let's skip to uh, uh, the New Radicals. Number 10, You Get What You Give. You must have been bumping this song in 1998. This is another one of those ubiquitous songs. Like, you don't go a week without hearing this song. And it's amazing that a song that really came out of nowhere, it only could have been 1998, um... And this is like it, like Torn. It's a song that's just kind of a fluke of the universe, you know. Like a lot of talented people put a lot of effort and time into this song, and yet, for everybody concerned, this was like a once in a lifetime combination of the elements that just exploded and became a timeless song. And the yeah, the Greg Alexander, the guy from the New Radicals, like essentially dropped off the face of the earth, although he was, you know, a pro songwriter. But it's like, for people who weren't watching MTV in 1998, it's hard to convey how often this semi-random dude's face was in your face, and then you never saw that face again. That's very 1998. Absolutely. I kind of wanted to um, fiddle with the list so that the new Radicals would be surrounded by songs by Beck, Hanson, Courtney Love, (laughs) and Marilyn Manson, but I couldn't make the math work. But speaking of uh, Courtney Love, uh, Celebrity Skin is on the list at number 13. Are you a fan? Uh, I I am a fan. Uh, you know, it's obviously there's a tussle, as you put it, between her and Billy Corgan over credit, but it might be my single favorite Hole song, actually. Yeah, it's funny that, that Hole and Smashing Pumpkins put out records that year, and there aren't any other songs on those records that sound anything like Celebrity Skin. Those are very sort of like uh, long, very uh, uh, thickly produced uh tracks celebrity skin is a song that's just you know like a bang on the head it's it's you know just a perfect three minute punk rock song that sums up really the uh you know the the decadent la lifestyle everybody was so obsessed with in the 90s well what next gang star uh, at uh 
number 18 with the above the clouds like gangstar had such a uh, a massive year in in 1998 and and in a way that the gangstar record moment of truth kind of sums up uh, a lot of freedoms that were in the air for hip hop in 1998 and that attract this like completely bizarre and completely beautiful and uplifting could could be something that you know that that could happen with inspector deck from the wu-tang clan above the clouds and I think there's a, like a, a John F. Kennedy sample at the beginning of the song, yeah. if I remember correctly, <laughs> uh, featuring John F. Kennedy. Let's uh, let's hear that for a moment. Myself, Lord and Master, shall bring disaster to evil factors. Demonic chapters shall be captured by kings. Wow. Well, uh, DMX with uh, "Get At Me, Dog." That was one where you know it was almost. It was agony to choose one DMX song. You know, he really blew up as far as the rest of the country was concerned. He, between "Stop Being Greedy" and "Get At Me, Dog," it was really hard to pick a favorite a favorite DMX jam of of 1998. One thing I realized listening to your whole list was I don't know if this has ever occurred to you is it, is the commonality between DMX and Mystical. They actually sound way more alike than it. It just never occurred to wow. me. If you listen to them back to back, which I ended up doing because I was going, I was like, oh, whoa, there's a, <laughs> I mean, I was, the big geographical uh, distance there, but but weirdly, must either was an influence or just coincidence, but there's a, a the same kind of like gruff voice melodicism is is uh, is in there. It's 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 weird, and I, I've n- I've never heard anyone mention that. Sometimes these things require distance before you you hear it, but but listen, people, if you if you listen, you will hear it. And wh- where next? Where should we go? How about Garbage at number 24 with Push It? I'd completely forgotten about the existence of this song, but it's very good. Yeah, and huge hit. It was all over MTV and the radio in the summer of 98. Version 2.0 is just like one of those great Lost Perfect albums. Lost to me, apparently. I mean, once I listened to it, <laughs> somehow it's just that, that that era of Garbage didn't sink in my mind. But let's hear Push It, which is a, a really cool song, and it kind of builds... This is the noise that keeps me awake My head explodes and my body can we talk about money anything? Because it's it's just I don't have much to say about it, but it's just a purely delightful song. What a great, great, great song! You know, if you were living in the South in 1998, you know that the triumph of Southern hip hop was you know something to celebrate and take pride in, and that Jermaine Dupri, who'd been doing it for such a long time in Atlanta, was suddenly an OG. And uh, money ain't a thing is such a like you said totally delightful song. It's it's a sort of purely euphoric hedonistic song it's kind of like 90s version of thin lizzie's the boys are back in town you know like it's just like yes let's just like go out and like spend tons of money and and you know drive around and just throw money out the window and and just celebrate that and i'm curious i don't want to uh, drag going through the list but there's a bunch of cases where there's you pick a track from a great 1998 album and maybe it's not the track that i would have picked but it's fascinating to me that you would have picked that. Bled White by Elliot Smith from XO, which is, again, I think of it more as just kind of a start to finish great album. How did you pick that one track? What What is it about that song for you? It's just, it's my favorite Elliot Smith song. It's definitely like my favorite from that album. It's hard to pick a favorite Elliot Smith song. There are, there are so many contenders and most of the ones I love most are, are ballads, you know, like Between the Bars or, or Angeles. But uh, Bled White is a, a, a rock and roll song. It really, it's a very different kind of song for him because he's got the intimacy and, and vulnerability of his ballads. But 
there's also a you know a ferocity there in, in the music. Blood White is a song that really kind of points to, I guess, the future that we were all sort of hoping for from Elliot Smith, that mm. a, a, a song that sort of goes beyond his, his sort of acoustic folky roots, but it, with just all his intensity there. And let's hear that Blood White by Elliot Smith. <laughs> Same question, actually, about Lucinda Williams and, and Metal Firecracker, because that's Carwells on the Gravel Road is a, the Roy Bitten co-produced <laughs> Carwells on the yeah. Gravel Road, um, <laughs> better than Human Touch, which he was his, yeah. his, 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 his co-production of a few years earlier. Again, hard to pick a song from that album. You pick one that I was surprised, I had almost forgotten about. So why Metal Firecracker? It's my favorite song on a great record. It's Carwells on the Gravel Road is such a packed record, really, from beginning to end uh jackson is such a heartbreaking ending to that record and it's funny that there are so many songs on it but metal firecracker for me is is the one that always jumped out it's the combination of the up-tempo guitars and her just astoundingly sad country voice and there's so many stories in this song that she really could only tell in in a song like this when she talks about sort of the the details of their romance and you know kind of drops hints and leaves leaves the rest of the story for you to figure out. So you're listening to Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm Brian Hyatt, and I'm talking to Rob Sheffield about his incredible list of the 98 best songs of 1998, and we'll be right back with more. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. I'm in the studio with Rob Sheffield, and we're talking about his list of the 98 best songs of 1998, and we're making our way backwards from number one, and we were circa number 28, but I'll let Rob decide where we will continue. Ah, oh, man, we'll air at, with Sexy Boy. What a phenomenal 1998 song that is. Yeah, let's hear that for a moment. Air was someone for me that was like a lot of people were having their air phases that I didn't get into at, at the time. I, I learned to appreciate it later. But uh, what do you love about them? There was a lot of stuff that you know was going for that kind of sound, that sort of pan-European jet set, you know, washed out cosmopolitan sound. And uh, <laughs> you would you couldn't necessarily call it techno, really, but because there was so much elements of of organic analog, sort of easy listening cheese in it. Um, and it was sort of just sort of a loving celebration of what was excessive about about that music. But uh, I, 
I really love it. It sums up the time. It's very bittersweet, very emotional, also very funny. Let's talk about Massive Attack's Angel, because you did say you interviewed them. A fun fact about Massive Attack's Angel, and let's hear the very beginning of it for a moment. Fun fact is that is a audiophiles like to use this song, especially the beginning, to test the bass on headphones and speakers because there's a, a real subsonic rumble there and it can blow. It can even blow some uh, speakers and headphones if you play it too loud. But beyond wow. that, yeah, yeah, that would totally make sense. I I would totally see that as like the subsonic rumble, like to to, to reckon with. Uh, Massive Attack, they were these mad scientists who spent years in the studio and, and they came out with a record every few years while everybody was trying to catch up with what they did last time and, and they were they were always doing something different. So when Mezzanine came out, it's funny that some Massive Attack fans were really underwhelmed by it and, and thought that there was too much guitar on it, that it was too rock. Huh. That must have been why I liked it at the time. <laughs> <laughs> Just like their previous record, Protection, people thought, oh, that's too much like an R&B record. You know, people people were always sort of mystified by what Massive Attack were doing. Where did trip hop's influence go? Do you think? Where do you where did you end up hearing it in the the, the twenty years that followed? I think it it you know it went everywhere. It went all through R and B. It went all through hip hop, and to a large extent now, you know, you, you still hear uh, you still hear its influence on on the sort of the sense of reverb and and echo that that saturates hip hop and and R and B production now. And number 36 is Robbie Williams' Strong, a song I'd almost forgotten about, and it's a very amusing song. Good Lord, I love that song. I, I, I have to admit I'm one of those people who thought Robbie Williams was going to blow up huge in the USA. Now it's funny because he's huge everywhere in the world except the USA. Some things do not change since the 90s, and he's been in the headlines because he was accused of, of ruining the World Cup. by uh, he, he did a set before a World Cup match of singing a few of his hits and... Uh, People were, were very irate about that. I love that Robbie Williams is still a scandal everywhere around the, the world, except the U.S. <laughs> and as you mentioned, it has one of the, the great lines, early morning when I wake up, I look like Kiss, but without the makeup. And then he says, uh, that's the per- something like this, the perfect line to take it to the bridge. Yeah. And the, confusing, <laughs> the confusing part is for British people, the bridge is actually the pre-chorus and the middle eight is the bridge, is what we call the bridge. So it's super confusing, actually. Really? He, yes. That's why he says take it to the bridge, but the song just got started. It's not like that's not the that's not the br- what we usually would call the bridge, and that's why the Beatles always said middle eight. That said, some people they're not unaware that Americans call that the bridge, but it is very confusing if if that's all you know the bridge to be. I can't believe songwriters haven't settled this on an international <laughs> level. Like it's it's like the metric system or something. Like it it could be very dangerous. So imagine the the <laughs> the calamities that could ensue in collaboration. Yeah, imagine the the faulty bridge architecture that that was. A, but you know, can't argue. This song this song is so great, and it's so funny that a lot of songs in 1998 had that. Wow, the biggest band in the world right now is Oasis. What a completely weird situation. Let's totally take advantage of it. So many songs have that Oasis kind of vibe in in the late 90s because it really was a time where they were the biggest band in the world. I will say almost nothing on this list evoked my actual just sort of going about hearing music that I wasn't necessarily putting on, but just like the radio, as much as Placebo's Pure Morning and the, the beginning <laughs> of that song, it's just, it, it just knocked me back to just, you know, turning on the radio for whatever reason. And we should hear that, you know, the friend and needs a friend indeed. Let's hear, we should hear <laughs> that bit. Song. Yeah. A friend in need, 
it's quite a song. <laughs> what, what do you it, make of it's it? It's fate. P- Placebo Pure Morning. It's a song I loved at the time. And then I more or less kind of forgot about, uh, and I only sort of rediscovered it because my wife loves to karaoke it. Uh, <laughs> and so I got to, to fall in love with that song all over again, just hearing my wife at karaoke bars at two in the morning, like yelling, a friend with breasts and all the rest, a friend who's dressed in leather. Uh, it's a, such a, a completely uh, abrasive, acerbic, in-your-face, pansexual kind of song. It's It's also a song that... Is so ridiculous and over the top and just so cheeky. I love everything about this song. And it it is a time travel thing, like you said. Well, 97 and 98 were this great era of modern rock radio because it was in this sort of one-hit wondery era where it was stuck between sounds and there were just all these great songs. Um, Absolutely. And so, but yeah, I, that's what, I think that's what it makes me think of is just, you know. Yeah. Like anybody could come out of anywhere and score a hit. And that was part of like how like so many like weird songs that, you know, like whether it was Ivy or Harvey Danger or the New Radicals or Placebo, these these bands that you never heard of, like could come out of nowhere with this massive hit that would be just part of everybody's lives. And that really was a very like specific 1998 kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, actually, I was thinking, like, when was Sex and Candy? That was 97. So it was, like, the 97, 98 period. And, and I will say, at the time, I was I was like, I want to write one of those, like, I want to be a one-hit wonder. <laughs> can, I, can, I write, can I write a modern rock one-hit wonder? It's a terrible ambition. It uh, didn't, didn't work out. Um, so number, number 39, Far From a One-Hit Wonder, R.E.M. At My Most Beautiful, a neglected, sort of begins uh, a, a neglected period for R.E.M. People overlook a lot of this era of R.E.M., totally. but, but it's a beautiful song. Totally. It, it's almost like uh, the opposite of one-hit wonder syndromes. R.E.M. just had so many classic songs that it's easy to take a song like this for granted. For any other band, this would have been their, you know, their Pure Morning or their Flagpole City. It would have been their, their claim to fame. And for R.E.M., uh, just because they have so many songs, this is one that gets lost in the shuffle, I, I think, a bit for them. But I, I, just astoundingly beautiful song. And we should hear that. Can we talk about uh, Divine Lately? Divine Lately is a song that it sort of epitomizes the 1998. You could come out of it anywhere and score a hit. This was not a band that had a big-time producer or big-time label or big-time manager. They didn't even have a scene. They were three girls from three different cities who were put together like for this group. And yet this song was just so powerful and so emotional and so urgent that it really like it came out of nowhere and just built up slowly on the radio and, and until it, it was a number one hit. And it's uh, strange in retrospect that it's it's gone away. It's it's a song that you know you haven't you don't hear in the wild like the way the way you should. So it's one of those underrated songs that that's ripe for rediscovery. For the verse "Bittersweet Symphony," I just want to uh, read your description of uh, frontman Richard Ashcroft, which is that he was born to be a rock star. Forty percent lips. 40% cheekbones, 20% shades, until he opened his mouth and became 100% poetic pretensions. So that, that may say it all. I love that guy. <laughs> I love Richard Ashcroft. I love, I, I love the verve. I love that they're still doing like, yeah, let's get to, back together and do a show or do a record. And then they break up again. I don't, it, in, in terms of, you know, that's something we love about English bands is how much, you know, they hate each other and how they stage fights and dramatic breakups. But the verve, 
what a track record. They broke up almost every time they made a record. He's also very fortunate because he's one of those guys who look like sort of an emaciated 45-year-old when he was 23. So, <laughs> so he'll always look like he does in the video. So that's good. You know, he's got that going for him. All right, what next? And uh, we're, we're, we're in the 40s now of your top 98 best songs of 1998. How about Sparkle Horse, Sunshine? Yes. I love that song. Sparkle Horse are such beautiful music and it's like and Good Morning Spider is such an incredible album Let, let's hear Sunshine to me it doesn't it doesn't say 1998 at all it kind of just yeah. floats in the the timeless ether for me at least totally you, you could definitely call this timeless and this like Mark Linkus from Sparkle Horse was from Virginia, but he was he was so much bigger in in Europe and and especially the UK than he was in the US. Huge influence on on Radiohead, who talked about him a lot. He was someone who you know never really uh, never really got his due. But Good Morning Spider, just perfect record. And what next? Uh, how about Destiny's Child at number forty five with No No No? Isn't it incredible how long we've been hearing Beyonce? Yeah, I remember writing about this song in Rolling Stone in the summer of 1998, and you know, and, and writing about Beyonce and like and, and how phenomenal she was in the summer of 1998 when this was the only Beyonce song I had heard, the only Beyonce song anybody had heard. It now, like after everything she's done and after everything even the Destiny's Child did, you know, it it doesn't necessarily loom large in the Destiny's Child canon or or in her canon, but it's it's funny to think that you know that. Even when this was the only Beyonce song that any of us knew, she was still Beyonce. I can't even recall the narrative in which they were presented as a as a Wyclef, as Wyclef's proteges. It doesn't even make any sense. It's it's hard to understand. It was really even hard to understand at the time when <laughs> you saw the No 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 video on MTV, and it's like, wow, these girls are great. Why does Wyclef keep interrupting them and saying? All I'm trying to do in the hood is survive and make a little money with Destiny's Child. Like, it <laughs> did not really seem like they they were. It, it didn't seem like they sounded like him, so it wasn't clear why they were uh, tied in with the Wyclefology. I like that he refers at some point in the song to No Limit Soldiers because <laughs> it, it just it's a real sort of like just a, a time ticker on the on the song. You know exactly yeah. when when it was recorded and why that made sense at that at that moment. Yeah, they went on to so many bigger and better things, but you know if if this were the only Destiny's Child song that ever existed, it it would still be enough to keep their name alive. Where should we go now, Rob? Going to do uh, Fat Boy Slim and the Dixie Chicks for a moment. I. I grew to hope the way you said that that there actually was a song that I missed from 1998 <laughs> where Fatboy Slim and the Dixie Chicks had collaborated because how great would that have been? But uh, yes, that would in, have been in great. fact, they're just next to each other. On <laughs> yes, the Rockefeller skank, Fatboy Slim. Quintessential only in 1998 sort of hit. It was a time when the idea of electronica as you know the new rock and roll was was really gaining <laughs> traction. People were really into the Chemical Brothers and Prodigy. They had radio hits. These these were groups that thought in terms of you know keeping the hardcore fans happy, but also in terms of songs that would play like you know for dilettantes, and nobody took that aesthetic further than than Fatboy Slim, who had the really weird thing where he made songs almost exclusively for dilettantes, yet the hardcore fans loved him as well. Nobody nobody was mad at Fatboy Slim. There was no sort of like backlash. Everybody thought it was awesome. He was like just kind of representing for 
for the dilettantes. That's yeah. That's what was so great. That's why all her songs were so good is because they were for dilettantes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, and the Rock of Those Cat. It really was the uptown funk of its day. I mean, listen. It's one thing that we have now is is this perspective of electronica and the electronica moment being 20 years ago <laughs> it, there's something so funny about that because it was it was so presented so fiercely as the future and to have it be to be basically antique as old now as 1978 was in 1980 that's that's a funny thing that's a strange thing yeah even by like 2000 2001 it was like wow electronica like kind of it came and went fast not that the music stopped being great and not that there didn't stop being a lot of that music but the idea of uh people sort of outside the scene saying like, yep, this is the future. I better get on board with it. So although, although great artists kept making great music and great great music kept reaching audiences, the idea of this is like, yep, this is the future, kind of fizzled fast. Well, it's weird. It's just like how the internet also booming at that time was really the future, and yet Pets.com didn't work out. It's kind of the same. <laughs> it's, the, it's the same thing. You were, We were right completely and also totally wrong. Yeah, but, absolutely. And the dish chicks, there's your trouble. It was amazing. Kind of like Beyonce. This was the first time we heard the Dixie Chicks. And again, it was a case where if this turned out to be the only song that they did, it would still be enough to keep their name alive. And like Beyonce, they went on to a lot of bigger and better things. But There's Your Trouble was the first Dixie Chicks song. I remember the first time I heard this and it completely blew me away. I was, to set the 90s scene a little bit, I was in a blockbuster. And I was looking at the new releases wall, and I was I was like, oh, what's like new in the ActGan new releases uh, wall of Blockbuster? And uh, and they were playing this song, and I thought, holy cow, this is phenomenal. All right, A, this sounds exactly like the Pet Shop Boys Go West, except with b- banjos and mandolins and fiddles. And second, the voices are so amazing, and uh, and and I, I listened to Wide Open Spaces. That's just a perfect debut album. And let's go to number 53. Great, great song. Elvis Costello and Burt Bacharach, Toledo. And let's hear that first. All through the night you telephoned I saw the light blinking red beside You know, it never occurred to me that that's not a very well-known song because it's very well-known in my head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. Again, one of the, like, the 90s things that... that in retrospect, it really kind of marks it in time. Is is the cult of Burke Bacharach that was so like so huge in in the late nineties, and that he was someone that all songwriters name dropped, and that Elvis Costello and Burke Bacharach got together and made this great album. And it had been a few years since Elvis had made uh, an, an album on this level, uh, and that Toledo is such a, a absolutely perfect song, and and a perfect song for both of them. It sounds totally like uncut Burt and uncut Elvis. And totally indelible. It's like an actual American songbook kind of classic, yeah, perfect it's, song. It's funny, like you said, it, it it sounds like a song that should be famous. Like it should, should have been a song that Dionne Warwick sang, you know, in the '60s. And at number sixty-three, another song that I'd like to hear Dionne Warwick sing. Yes, yeah. <laughs> "Soak the Shockers." It ain't my fault. Which, like, I think at least ten percent of your songs on your list has mystical on it somewhere <laughs> in there. It's kind of a, a quintessential no limit song. You know, you were talking earlier about the the no limit soldiers and what a nineteen ninety eight reference that was. Uh, Master P just came out of New Orleans. Nineteen ninety eight was the year where he really blew up nationwide, and, and this was at a time when it's it's weird in retrospect and and unthinkable that that nationwide the rap industry was so focused on New York and LA and really did not want to acknowledge the regional scenes in between. So for 
artists all through the South, 1998 was kind of like the year where they, they really rose up. And New Orleans, Master Peach sounded so completely uncut and all those No Limit records that he churned out so fast, uh, they sounded so weird and, and kind of wrong to, to to the rest of the country, the way that, you know, in, in Silk, the Shaka and, and Mystical, whose rap styles are completely unmatched in the way that they sing totally like out of tune, they sing the chorus. <laughs> uh, and also this great No Limit album covers. So we may not get to all 98 songs, but <laughs> where should we go next, Rob? Uh, how about... Everclear, I Will Buy You a New Life. Fantastic song at number 75. Yes, I really like that song. There's something on that song that's bothered me for 20 years, though. Ooh. Uh, which is when he says, I will buy you a new car, perfect, shiny, yeah. and new. Why not blue? Why not okay, blue, yeah. Art? Why, Why not blue? Uh, well, that's a flaw in the craftsmanship, for sure. And it and it really, you notice it now. It's, you know, it's... It bugs me every time I've heard it. It, it drives me insane. It, all I you hear, have to do is I say I hear blue. that song at the pharmacy all the time. Anytime I'm buying toothpaste, I will hear that song. They, they're really into their 90s jams there. And uh, and I Will Buy You a New Life, which is such a perfect song. Yeah. The way the word new shows up twice in that line, you wonder, you wonder nobody said anything in the studio. I think it was, you know, it was artistic license, but I, I, I deny him his license. Uh, <laughs> and, I mean, interestingly, there's also, God, what's that other, A Father of Mine, which is, he liked his songs so much that he would often write five or six versions of them. But th- this this particular one is undeniable. And Santa Monica is one of the best songs of the entire 90s. That is Absolutely. an unbelievable killer Absolutely. song. He was someone with this, his totally, uh, his unique songwriting style, like you said, he 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 used a lot of the same riffs and, and chords. Like always, always telling a story that was always variations on the same kind of you know like broken, dysfunctional middle American family kind of story. Always saying something new with it. Always like just fantastic writer, uh, fantastic singer, and uh, ever clear that was that was such a huge moment for them. I will buy you a new life is such a just you know heartbreaking song. Let's go to Savage Garden. Truly. Yes. My, Madly, deeply, it's a it's a soft, well, soft something, not soft rock. What would you call it? Maybe like smooth <laughs> pop with about like twelve O's in it. Um, they were and and it was the kind of thing they came out. You saw the band name Savage Garden. You're thinking, okay, this is yet another you know like lame grunge band. You know, like trying to ride the wave. Go ahead, and it comes on, and it's like, no, it doesn't sound much like Savage Garden. It doesn't sound like you know Soundgarden or Savage Animal or any other band with Savage in their name. It sounds very unsavage, very smooth, very suave, very confident, and very super emotional. His voice is so trembly in that song. You listen to it and you think, wow, like he could have done another take if he wanted to. His voice is really shaking because he's so choked up with these sentiments that he's singing and he wants to bathe with you. Like <laughs> nobody uses the word bathe in, in a pop song, let alone in the chorus. And it's so effective. And every time it comes up in the chorus, it's like, I want to bathe with you. And it it's like, wow, only only. Savage Garden could use this word that brilliantly. I completely love this band. I completely love this song. Couldn't say it better. And speaking of two boy duos who like really cleaned up in 1998, how about some old guys from the 80s, 70s that we weren't necessarily expecting to find in the 90s? Hall and Oates at I, number 80. I have never in my life heard of or <laughs> or known of the existence of this song in any way until I saw it on your list. Well, we you're welcome, Brian. You're yes, welcome. I, let's hear it. <laughs> Don't want to open your heart. You'll be afraid from the start. That a new love's gonna let you die. 
And until I listened to it, I, I thought maybe you were making it up, but there it is. There it is. And to me, that's one of the beautiful things that sums up, you know, the insanity of 1998, that, you know, you could be sitting and hear a Holland Oates song on the radio and think, wow, anything like has a chance at the radio now. Like things are falling apart so completely that Holland Oates can come out with this like smooth, classic Holland Oates jam, which as far as I'm concerned, is one of the top 10 Holland Oates sounds songs ever so soulful so committed and not even trying to redo what they did in the 80s it's 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 a it's a mature reflective middle-aged kind of love song <laughs> and it it really like i think probably the moms who are into savage garden were also probably into hollow notes there's never enough hollow notes in the world if it takes being a mom to like hollow notes and savage garden we're all moms then are we? we are all we are all 90s moms increasingly <laughs> we are all 90s moms korea girl their song, Under the Sun, that was probably the most obscure song on this list. That was the one that probably, I'm guessing like pretty close to 99% of people, like even people who were like listening to music at the time, this band, there were so many bands all over America and every town had bands like this. So a, a band like this with a song this great could, could get lost in the shuffle. They were out of San Jose and uh, Under the Sun is just like a phenomenal song that to me like part of what makes it so great is it sums up how so many bands sounded and what so many bands were trying to do with their guitars at the time we should hear that there's a few songs on the list where it's like the indie-ish songs where because of the the great way they were recorded at the time, you're plunged into whatever room they were in when they recorded that song in nineteen in nineteen ninety eight. And there's been there's the few like out of those five or ten of the songs on your list where I, you know listening on good headphones, it's like oh here I am in this room. It can almost it's so great to be in a room because many of the bigger songs you're not in any room. Yeah, but here you're you're definitely in a room, a little yeah. concrete walled room, no doubt. But yes, the the Rondell song is like that too. Can we talk about that? Because yeah, sure. I know you're a fan as well. Yeah, the, there's this uh, the spectacularly, at least I think, obscure band called the Rondells at 81, Safety in Numbers, on Rob's list. And it, you know, I I happened to see them at at CMJ, and it, they had to. I think like the drummer was also playing keyboards yeah. or something. There's some some kind of some kind of which I think actually, by the way, Semisonic also had, same setup. Really? Yeah. Yes. Um, oh my but, gosh. <laughs> but definitely true of the Rondells. And they were like this. They, I mean, let's hear this song for a minute. It's a great song, Safety in Numbers. I've got your number. It's on my wall. Your old phone number. It's on my wall. But I can't, I can't reach you. You've been gone for so long. And, you know, they, they were like the, the perfect sort of, well, you, you say it. I mean, you're a fan. It's, as you know, like you saw them live and it's like, okay, this guy is drumming with one hand and playing keyboards with the other. And Juliet was on guitar, Kiko was on bass. And it was like very like screamy, girly, capture, like you said, captures the sound of the room. You are in the room when they're playing this and it's very like powerful. It's very funny. It's also very emotional. It's like girl groupy punk, which is yeah, really, really an appealing idea to me. Yeah. But we're both almost out of time and also almost at the bottom of the list. So maybe pick a couple songs, then we can uh, say goodbye. Well, um, Semisonic, with closing time, would be a very good place to go out. <laughs> since it is a song, of course, about how every 
every beginning is begins with an ending how how exactly? every new beginning yeah. is some other beginning's end yes exactly yeah. this is a song that everybody knows you will hear this song at one moment of your life maybe only that one time where this song says everything to you you will be in that mood where that song hits you and it it and it sums everything up and uh, dan wilson that you can you look and he was uh our guest for an earlier episode of this show, and he talked about that song and a lot of other things. But uh, you know that that song is actually written about his uh, his then in utero child, uh, apparently. Uh, That's so, so amazing. Which who was apparently the kid was just drinking so much beer in the womb it was crazy. But uh, yeah, you know it, it was a you know all metaphorical. But but uh, Dan Wilson like such a uh, such a great songwriter and and has done has has had so many songs. But this is, you know, this is one where you know, the songwriter must have known right away. This is the standard. This is you know the wedding ballad. Well, I guess not the wedding ballad. Actually, this would be a terrible wedding ballad. But it, it, a song that's just a real heart tugger, sentimental, universal chestnut. Well, yeah, and there's. I mean, we, you know, we could probably do a whole show talking about closing time. But it's it's interesting that the extent to which it includes this sort of homogenized version of the Nirvana guitars six years, seven years after that was revolutionary. There's like sort of a, it has a, a Nirvana-esque kind of, because that, that had been codified into alt-rock, and yet he grafted it onto a much popular kind of vision. It's just it's just really interesting on a production level. And, but but it's also, I mean, it, it's not just sort of a curio. It, it, it's, it, it's in his way great. It is the 96th, perhaps best song of 1998. Well, this was this was a song where it's, uh, it's, it's just, a song that really kind of sums up a lot of what made 1998 like a, a great year and what makes the music of that year still sound uh, uh, vibrant and, and, and exciting that it was a thing where a band, you know, could come out of nowhere and have a hit like this that would be so, you know, so undeniable. It's funny that it wasn't even the first single from this album. Uh, the first one was Singing in My Sleep, which was really good. I loved that song and I, I, I thought that that song was going to be like the defining semi-sonic hit. The drummer in that band, Jacob Slichter, wrote this awesome book, So You Want to Be a Rock and Roll Star, about what it was like to be the drummer in a band that turned out to be a one-hit wonder. Weirdly, the same plot as that thing you do. You don't know you're in a one-hit wonder <laughs> while you're in. That's the whole thing about being in a one-hit wonder is, is you don't actually know. <laughs> yeah. it's I, I love that book. Um, it's 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 really unique because there are lots of memoirs by you know like super rich famous long running rock stars and then there are lots of books about you know sort of like you know like uh, seedy exciting underground scenes but uh, hardly ever any books about the sort of mid range sort of uh, rock and roll lifestyle and uh, he's he's really specific it's it's funny that you know, people read that book and they're like wow a lot of meetings in this book but you know. He he evokes those meetings. What's well, even like their first photo shoot? The stylist is trying to like find a leather jacket to make them look cool <laughs> and and not too old and like it's just it, it's and you know he talks about where the camera's focusing on him when they play Jay Leno or whatever they're playing. You know it's it, it's anyway highly recommended. But that has been roughly speaking the ninety eight best songs of nineteen ninety eight. To read Rob Sheffield's entire list, you should go to rollingstone.com. And thanks very much to Rob Sheffield for being here. We'll be back next week here on Sirius XM's Volume, Channel 106. And in the meantime, we are a podcast. Download us as a podcast. Subscribe to us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe leave us a nice review on iTunes. 
And as always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.